What I am saying is it's a time of experimentation where leaders and workers have to kind of try some of this stuff out. We're obviously living in a time that's full of uncertainty, but what decisions can we make to create more joy, connection, and solidarity, even at work? It's a question we're all facing right now. Welcome back to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. When we started making this podcast season, it was early in 2020, the before times. We were excited to talk about joy and purpose and passion and harmony, and then the events of 2020 started to unfold and unroll before us. We paused. We weren't sure what was coming next or really how to have a conversation about joy at work in the midst of so much pain and loss, turmoil and uncertainty. But as I have led my own firm through these challenging times, I continue to feel quite hopeful. And in my view, creating solidarity and community has become even more important than ever. We need each other in our personal circles, our work teams, and in our broader communities. Moments of joy might look different when we're all quarantining and social distancing and grappling with really big problems in our world. But creating those connections and opportunities for purpose, ambition, collaboration, that's how we're gonna move forward. I'm not sure I've ever met anyone as joyful and optimistic as our first guest, Dan Cable. He's an author and teacher, an inspirational coach, a mentor, and a provocateur on this topic about joy and work. Dan is a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School and an author of several books, including Alive at Work and his new book, Exceptional, Build Your Personal Highlight Reel and Unlock Your Potential. So welcome, Dan. Hey, Alex. How you doing? Great. Full disclosure for our listeners, we originally recorded a conversation together in the London Business School studios way back in January. But since then, so much has changed in our world and our work since then. We wanted to catch up and talk again about finding joy in our no normal, never normal world that we live in now. So Dan, first, I'm really interested to hear from you. How has your life changed in 2020? And what are some of the challenges you've had to work through? Wow. You know, I I don't want to think that I'm extra special, Alex, but I am a raging extrovert. Do you know that? I think. Yes, I kind of got that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, there's a couple of things. I actually wrote the book focusing on some of these issues because I'm feeling like probably a lot of people, a bit of um, isolation, a little social distance to myself. It's interesting. One of the biggest things is not teaching. Uh, I've worked with a lot of the partners there. How they kind of know me is being in the room, you know, kind of provocateuring, as they say. And just really get feeding off that wave of energy. And then also, um, I love going out to see music and gigs. And I just really miss that so much. (laughs) So how have you coped then? What have you done to sort of compensate for that kind of immediate shock to your normal life? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of them, maybe we'll talk more about the, the new book later. But one of the things that I've tried to focus that book on is building stronger relationships and kind of savoring relationships. I I started off with, uh, like probably many people, with Zoom, and I found it just didn't work for me. It it actually corroded some of the relationships because I don't know why. I shouldn't even act like I know why, but it's like my brain was trying to get real-life friendship out of it, but what was happening is it felt like a work call. And so what I started doing instead is like what, what I talk about in this book, which is 
um, sending out like gratitude to people that I really know well in terms of like what they do that is special for me. Almost like a living eulogy. Like I wrote people notes saying, here's what I appreciate about you. And then some of them wrote back. So believe it or not, that has actually been kind of an interesting thing for me to be doing. Uh, Like a new habit, Alex. Someone told me, you know, you're not making new friends in a crisis, right? You're you're rebuilding and solidifying your relationships over time. So it sounds like that was a nice way to acknowledge, see, and support the people that are going through similar similar topics. That's right. I really like that way of thinking about it, Alex. I don't know if we're going to want to unpack this, but so many times, like a lot of the um, partners that I've worked with, we've gone through this thing called point positive, where that's the point of it. You sort of go out and get people to tell you what they appreciate about you at your best. And so sometimes at the beginning, that can feel kind of mm, solipsistic. <laughs> it can feel kind of like me, 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 me. But one of the things that I'm learning is it, it flips really well too. It's like not only learning from them how you make your best impact, but it's also like you have the ability to send that out so that you're helping them see who they are at their best. And it, I don't know, well, I guess here's the thing. I think it actually uses gratitude, the emotion of gratitude to build reciprocity and like more trust essentially. And to me, that seems to be like one of the really interesting things that is happening is you can build more vulnerable relationships by doing this. Alex, it's really an experiment like that we're all in. We're all the lab rats in this experiment. If we develop some kind of vaccine, big if, right? And if we've got a year of this weirdness and then it kind of starts to, you know, go back to sort of the way we used to work, I'm not positive that enough has changed that we're going to sort of keep friending this way. I think that work will change. We can talk a lot about how work and job crafting and personalizing work. There's loads of stuff that I have to say about that. You mentioned a good point about how does this apply to the work life in general? Obviously, in your day life as a business school professor and author and coach to individual executives and companies, you talk to a lot about those folks uh, about how to improve the workplace, their work lives. So what are you hearing about the kind of support people need in this environment? Well, this personalizing your work is just, it's just really taken off in a way that, for instance, a lot of people were kind of talking about digital changing the world and it was already going to happen. This revolution that we're in right now and so on, you know, where the, the PayPals and the Amazons and so on are really becoming dominant forces due to technology. And it just seems like the, the crisis, the COVID crisis has kind of accelerated all that. I think the same thing has happened with personalizing work. A lot of companies were kind of starting to mess around with work at home and like once a month they'd give people a half a day to work at home or a day to work at home. It was very tentative. There was a lot of writing on the wall that when we allow employees to customize the work around their strengths and around their unique perspectives and just around the way they want to do the work, we seem to get better work out. And there's a lot of really good evidence out there. Well, this experiment has fast forwarded that and we've accelerated a decade in six months because now all of a sudden, we're all working from home. Guess what? <laughs> and then while you're working from home, you have to customize the work around the way that you want to do it, the way that it works best for you. And I just see that working. It's, it, it's working for a lot of people better. And um, I think that a lot of us long for the human connection. Like, like I said earlier, I, I do think there's a lot of isolation that we're grappling with, almost like entrepreneurs do when they start up a new venture. You know, you, It kind of gets lonely. But at the same time, the way work almost starts to feel more entrepreneurial when you're able to do it at your pace and at the way that you like to do it and sort of in the order you like to do it. I think a lot of people are learning that why would we go back to formalized job descriptions that kind of 
cage me into a way where I can't be my best. You know what I mean by that, Alex? Yeah, no, I think that's right. There's a, we're testing a lot of organizational models. You, you point out the trend of screeching acceleration to the future, right, through the technology. Uh, but even before the screeching acceleration due to COVID and other matters that are affecting us all mentally, there, there was an epidemic of isolation and alienation and mental illness that was on the rise. So that has also accelerated, right, due to the pressures from, you know, your own physical safety as well as what's happening, you know, on the justice side. What do you see are some of the best examples of leaders or companies who are trying to take care of their people in this day and age with all those pressures externally and internally? I'll say two things to start with, Alex. The first one is about when I talked about customizing work, what I'm going to say now is for leaders, it has something to do with customizing the relationship, the leadership relationship, because I think more than ever right now, leaders have to be really in tune with where each of their people is mentally, emotionally, even like psychologically in a way that we weren't as comfortable with. And maybe we weren't as demanding around six months ago. And so I think that that is almost the types of questions like, you know, how are you doing? How can I help you? What do you need from me right now? Like, What kind of support would be useful? And that comes really close to that concept of humble leadership that I believe you and I've even had a chat about once upon a time. But it's instead of it being the dominant leader that has all the answers and kind of makes the command and control decisions, it's more about the leader that tries to empathize with where each person is and then try to help them get what they need to be effective at work. And that is more of almost a servant role than a commander role, if you will. And I actually see uh, leaders, I, I'm not going to say companies, it's not like companies have the same kind of leaders, no matter which one you talk to, but some leaders are much more comfortable with this approach. They're way more comfortable being vulnerable. They're way more comfortable saying, I don't have all the answers, but I'll try to help you get to where you need to go. And I think that's, I would call that a helpful trend. I think the idea of empathy, listening, trying to be helpful as a leader is just where we need to be in the world right now, as opposed to the know-it-all, you know, <laughs> chest-beating, <laughs> you know, uber-masculine, quote-unquote, leader. So that's one trend. And a second one that I think is really interesting, I wrote about this in a Harvard Business Review article pretty recently. It's this idea about how leaders can help people personalize purpose this one t might take a little longer to unpack, but I think if I had to jump to the chase, it would be trying to ask questions that would help the follower, you know, the team member, understand why they're doing what they're doing, who's affected by what you do. And I'm reminded of this one leader I was talking to where he would call each of his people and say, I'm going to ask you two questions. Um, the first one is, who would you say your customer is? And many, many, many people know who their customer is, like certainly if you're an external facing, but a lot of the internal people would say things like, well, I don't really have a customer. I'm in, I'm in like, you know, accounting. And then that led to really good conversations about, well, of course you have customers. I mean, the people who use your work, right? And, and that was interesting. But he said what was more powerful was when he asked, who's your customer's customer? The person you serve who uses your work, who are they serving? Because maybe you could serve them a lot more effectively if you knew that. And he said that, that he would give people, like, he'd say, okay, why don't you take a month, think about that, call some people, you know, do some questioning, and try to, try to like, learn about that. So the next time we talk about this, you'll have some answers. Anyway, that idea about trying to help people link what they do all day to the lives that are affected by the work they do, it's a new kind of conversation for some leaders. But now more than ever, that's a form of personal connectivity 
It's a way of seeing your impact on other human beings. They might be inside the company, they might be outside the company, but they are human beings that are affected by what you do all day long. I think what you're saying resonates a lot with me as well, Dan. I think there have always been leadership archetypes about the type of leaders that have the most lasting impact. And in a crisis like this, the, there's a regularity of communication that's obviously picked up the cadence, but there's also an authenticity, as you say, of vulnerability. We're all in this together. We're all working from home. We all you know, are outraged around the social injustice activities that have come to a head. We all want to speak out and move towards reconciliation. So I think hearing from the leaders on a regular and in a pure and clear way is reassuring. And it's also something that it's new ground, the joint purpose around things. And I, I do think also what you said sparked another trigger, which is I think stories matter. And I think what I've tried to, to lean on is talking about my own personal narrative or, or things that make me feel happy right? Whether it's seeing a movie or having the virtual happy hour or getting a bike and going around the neighborhood, whatever it is that can get you through the stress, right? People like, want to hear that and they say, yeah, he's, he or she is just like me in that sense. And also the tragedies that people have, you know, people are surprised to hear that, you know, I've had guns trained on me by three police cars in this century due to a racial profiling incident. So when you talk about standing up for things in this crazy world, and having a personal story to accentuate why you believe it, it's not just check the box, right? Then I think you feel closer, as you say, in the servant leadership archetype with your, um, with your followers. That's right. That's really very interesting. Picking up on your authenticity comment, it's funny how Zoom often lets us see the real life backgrounds that people are in. Sure, yeah. And it gives us access to their kids screaming and the postman knocking on the door. And there's something about that that's very different. I know that's not quite leadership, but I think that people seeing their leaders like in their own homes uh, with, you know, with the postman knocking or the, the dishwasher uh, fix-it person coming in the door, I think there's something really equalizing there that could be very good for us. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. In this world, there's no superheroes, right? We're all humans, and uh, that's, that sense of equality at the most basic level is coming through in so many ways. Now, but on the flip side, now we've got this world, we've adapted to it. I mean, some of the comments and, you know, feedback I get from folks that are very frustrated by the work at home situation is that, you know, there's no boundaries. People think that you're home, therefore you're always there. They don't, you know, they don't realize they have, you know, kids at home and things like that. Any advice for the whole person on that one, getting that balance right? It's, a, it's advice that I myself have trouble taking. There's good research being done on this right now. And so I'm you know, as a researcher, I'm aware of it, but I'm finding that it isn't very hard to do correctly. Again, I mean, if I go back to the entrepreneur analogy, if you start saying, I'm going to do the work in the way that I like to, and in the order that I like to, you often start caring about it a little bit more. This is one of the truths about the world of work. If you take the identical task, but you allow people to personalize that task and start to own it, it starts to mean more to them. The same task starts to mean more. Now that sounds kind of good. We're supposed to have, feel meaning and feel that sense of purpose. That, that sounds really good. Except then it starts knocking on your time. It starts saying, the work starts saying, hey, this could be a little better over here. And uh, you're not really quite done with that. And it'd be nice if that person could get that task or complete it today. And, and so then people, I think, at least for me, kind of start coming back to it at night a little bit more than I used to, I believe. And you're right. It becomes much more porous. There's no like, get home. <laughs> now, of course, that's already been decayed by tech, you know, kind of 24-7 email, all that kind of stuff. 
but it does feel that we're at the next level now. Like, I'll just speak for me. When I am, quote, done working, unquote, I work in my living room a lot. And then I step outside. There's no commute home. Like, I'm just stepping outside the door. And I'm still kind of in work mode. And what I guess I try to do is go and exercise. That's the one for me. I'll go for a run or I'll like, I just do this little thing where it's like 10 exercises twice in a row, just like kind of a, I don't know what you call it, like a circuit of exercises. And that helps reset me. But I've got to do something that gets my head out of the work and lets me like talk to my kids like a, like a human. But I, anyway, I'm finding it a little bit hard myself. And some days, I, like today actually, I'm actually coming into my office place for that reason. So we're just starting to open up here at London Business School and starting this concept of hybrid teaching where we teach live and then people can either come in or not come in and tune in digitally. And so I'm kind of starting my way back into work these days. Well, I mean, it seems like we all have to cope in our own ways and we all find and have to strike the right balance. You know, the first thing I do when I wake up is go outside for a 15 minute, 20 minute, you know, not at a fast pace, but a jog. It clears my air and my head. I think about what I need to do immediately. And then I come in for a while. And then if there's a break, I just bought this bike. I go biking in the neighborhood for 15, 20 minutes. And it's just peaceful to have, it's nice weather now, of course, too, but, you know, just sort of to uh, get away from it all and then come back fresh. Your idea of resetting is, is a really good thing. You have to have a daily reset button as opposed to just grind into a rut, which happens if you do nine to five as well. Yes, it really does. I think what's changed for me and for many people is when you're sitting in the same physical place and even in the same air, literally the same sort of temperature, this, it can really, there are days I just don't leave the house. And those are really strange days. I'd say life almost becomes surreal. And so you're right, having building in almost abrupt jolts so like you said, like, again, running works really well for me. This sort of circuit thing works really well for me. But something that like uses the body, it almost, this is so funny to say out loud, but it almost proves to you that your body is real. <laughs> it's not just like a machine for moving your head around. It's like, it's, it's a real thing that you get, to, you get to use it. And when you activate it, I think that it gives you all those nice chemicals, you know, like dopamine and adrenaline and uh, all that sort of thing. Well, well, you've written a lot about that in terms of you know, the neuroscience of happiness and joy and what makes people seek what they want in their lives. This is your seeking systems concept. I remember your research, you know, illustrating that if we really want to have a zest for work that is sustained over time, that you will, you know, work till the end of your life, you need to activate these quote unquote seeking systems. How would you suggest to the audience we do that? in 2020, you know, with so much heaviness around us. This is a place I have a lot of optimism, Alex. This is one of those places where I'm not saying that we got it perfectly yet, but I am saying that this experiment that we're in right now has forced all three of those triggers to be switched on. Let's just go through those triggers just so everybody can kind of listen to them. The first one is experiment and explore your work so that you don't just do it the way it's always been done, but you think about new ways to do old things. And it doesn't mean it always works, but it means you try it out. And I think a lot of us are being forced to try it out in new ways right now. Like for me right now, literally teaching through Zoom, it really is challenging. It's very interesting. I'm very curious how to get better. The first two or three I did, it didn't go that well. I had to learn and adapt to the feedback. So, you know, that's number one. That's the first trigger that I think like we're all being pushed a bit on. The second one is I've already mentioned, which is like using your strengths to personalize the work. And I think that now more than ever, leaders need that. 
in the past, they used to say they needed it. They, they sort of recognized they needed it, but they didn't always allow it, so to speak. And I think now what leaders need more than ever is for people to find a way to do their work and to accomplish the results of the work, but use their best skills and use their unique perspectives. I think now more than ever, that's something that leaders are needing and not just saying nice to have. And then the third one, which I've also hinted at, is this personalizing purpose. And it's this idea of helping people find a story or a narrative about who's affected by what I do. And that's not the leader's narrative. That's not like Merck saying, you know, we build better, stronger lives. That is the Merck person in accounting saying that when I put these budgets together better, the decision makers can make better decisions about saving lives. And so the point being helping people figure out at their own level of work who gets impacted by it. So those are the three triggers. And like, again, I'm not saying that we've got this perfect. What I am saying is it's a time of experimentation where leaders and workers have to kind of try some of this stuff out. No, I think that's true. The necessity has been the mother of this creativity and reinvention of ourselves. And I think well, you make a good point that, you know, raising our blood pressure via learning is a good thing, right? It's just sort of increases engagement. There's this phrase out there that says stress is good. Our body needs stress. It's how we interpret the stress that makes it good or bad. And so to the extent that you interpret the stress as a threat that's going to take me down, then that causes these negative drugs, these, neuro, uh, these neurotransmitters to kind of kick in. And all of a sudden we're you know, feeling fear and anxiety as opposed to excitement and curiosity. But I think the stress itself is good. You know, the stress kind of pushes us to interact with the world, doesn't it? Right. Well, well adapting to stress also creates what people call resilience, character, integrity, a sense of purpose. So I really want to hit on your point about the purpose that we found, you know, obviously I'm leading company of service providers. Uh, we're serving clients globally. And, you know, people want to have an impact, not only on their clients, uh, but and also on their teams, because it's an apprenticeship model of training the next generation to, to do the same craft. And also, if everything can cascade from that, as you say, the customer, the customer, the purpose of the purpose, people feel a little bit more directional and they can, your seeking system has a, has a target. That's right. As near as I can tell, I've been trying to learn about this a lot, Alex, as you know. It's one of those sort of centers of my world. And I think this is a confusing one, but here's the way I understand it best. It's almost like we, and I mean even mammals. I don't even just mean humans. I mean mammals. What we are interested in innately, my brain has cooked up this scheme. <laughs> it's cooked up this reward system that you mess with the environment and see what happens. And that cause and effect for humans starts to become purpose. That's very confusing for me, and I'm not even sure I'm right about this, but it seems to be because we have this thing called a prefrontal cortex. This part of the brain has language and can see the future. Reason, right? Yes. It seems to in, invite us, of all the mammals, it seems to invite us to say, but why are you doing this? What cause are you trying to create? What is the impact of you and your actions? And I, that's why I'm so interested in this, Alex, because it appears that for a human, when we have that narrative and we believe in that story, it starts to ignite us. And that's when we get the dopamine and we get charged up. And we even get that lovely word you said, resilience. When we have a sense of purpose, like why I do what I do, we're more resilient in pursuing that end. And boy, do companies need that right now, you know? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the philosophers from the very beginning talked about the, you know, the why of the why, right? The purpose is to find the why. And I think if you're rational animals or mammals, as you say, the ability to actually envision and see the future or forecast scenarios is probably something that can be usefully applied in this scenario, in this situation, as you say. Now, if we look more tactically, Dan, like what, what are some immediate top of mind triggers to make work more joyful? And how are you thinking about those types of triggers? Just to, the, the daily reset. <laughs> how do you get that blood pressure going in the right way? <laughs> I love it. Here's the best thing I think anybody can do. Anybody out there probably can do this. When you're dealing with this, it often can feel like negative stress. And I don't know why that's the case, but when it's time to adapt your work to a new way, like when it's time for me to start trying to teach on Zoom, there's a big part of you that's going to resist that very naturally. And it's going to like not go perfectly and it's going to feel awkward. It's almost like Alex writing with your other hand. It just starts to feel kind of childish and awkward and it, it looks like you don't have good competence. And that can be really stressful, but also it just makes you feel like an incompetent, unprofessional, basically. I think that the story that you tell yourself at that moment is so important. So to the extent that you can use the growth mindset kind of language and say things like, you know, this is a journey and honestly, nobody walked before they fell. And so, yeah, I'm going to mess up the first kind of the first few times I teach on Zoom. It's not going to go that great. Just like the first couple of times I did a podcast, I felt stilted and I was trying to read too much. And the first couple of times that I tried to, you know, literally work on a Word document, <laughs> you know, back in 1984, 1985, trying to work on a Word document, it just doesn't make sense relative to writing it out. And so everything's hard before it gets easy. And when you talked about those three triggers, I think that my trick and some trick that people can use is to remember that those triggers are sort of good pain. It is a little painful to adapt to the environment and explore. It, that can be kind of threatening. But if you remember that this is what we humans are good at, this is what your brain is for, you can kind of put yourself in a mode. And that's the way I want to say it. You put yourself in a mode of curiosity and interpreting that change in the environment is like a chance to learn. And that's really just Carol Dweck, you know, Carol Dweck, growth mindset, 101 kind of stuff. But if you interpret that same thing as, oh shit, I'm messing up. Oh shit, because of the world changing, I'm not looking as good anymore. I'm not getting it perfectly anymore. That's a downward spiral. That's like negative self-talk. So to me, that ability to remind yourself that their triggers toward the positive is gold. It seems there's a common theme as well, Dan, about of your three triggers. It's really fully engaging the brain, right? If, the, if you believe that curiosity is a human attribute, your point about, and your three points about, you know, experimenting, exploring, taking risks, learning, finding a new horizon for yourself, and then personalizing the things that you actually like, you know, the strengths that you're good at, you know, adapting your brain and doing more of those things and less of the stuff you don't think you're really good at. And then finding, using your rational part of your brain, your prefrontal to find the purpose. And then, like you said, personalize it. I think it links very much to your seeking systems, really, right? Your three seeking system philosophy leads to the three daily triggers. It appears based on the neuroscience. And I mean like the real neuroscientist. I don't mean like me, Alex. I'm a social psychologist, but the actual neuroscientists who are like, like lab coats, right? <laughs> you got it. These are <laughs> medical professionals, Alex. For those people, it appears that this literally is a part of the brain. They call it the ventral striatum. And these triggers, it appears, literally release dopamine because it's a reward system. 
Because what it's trying to do is encourage you to do that more. The brain wants you to push out beyond your limits. It wants you to understand your cause and effect in the world. It wants you to understand what your strengths are so you can make a better impact and get more resources. And so our ability to follow those urges is a really positive thing for us getting, you know, that magical word zest, right? That magical word zest, which means life starts to feel like an adventure that you get to do instead of like a hassle that you have to work through, you know, that feeling of like hard to get out of bed in the morning because you just don't want to drag yourself through it again. That's like, instead of zest, that's like a depressive symptom. You know what I mean? There was this quote about, uh, I think it was Churchill, that you know, never waste a good crisis. And if you've got the fundamental neuroscience principles that you're elaborating on here, and also couple that with the urgent environment, that seems to be a hotbed for innovation, right? Breakthrough thinking, whether it's on vaccines or social models. So, I mean, the, the topic of innovation, which you research quite heavily in your day life, has got to be informing a, a faster clock speed on this topic. Do you have any advice for teams or companies, even countries that are trying to innovate more quickly outside of tapping this inherent rationality and need to learn more and be better? Yeah. Let me tell you about something that is both really timely because it's an article that just last week got accepted in basically our best journal. It's called the Academy of Management Journal. But these are three studies that just got accepted as one uh, research article. So that's really cool. And so this is one of those things I think that hits on all the different pistons, if you will. But it's this point positive process of going out and getting people outside the workplace, family members, friends, cousins, aunts, moms, dads, mentors, people that have seen you throughout your life and have them write down memories or stories of times that they've seen you make a real difference, times they've seen you make your best impact. And so they write literally, like they write out little stories about you. And then we gather those up and we give them to people. It's, it's almost like hearing your own eulogy while you're still oh, alive. That's great. You know? I love the idea. What we've learned is teams where we do this, this best self-activation, this point positive intervention, not only were more likely to bring unique ideas to the team, they were more willing to share unique perspectives. They were more willing to talk in objective ways about the way they see the world, even though it conflicts with how you see the world. They were kind of willing to have a good fight. They were self-affirmed enough to say, here's my lens, here's my perspective, these are my facts. Not only were they more willing to do that, but those teams were more able to succeed because what that often does is it lets teams innovate. I think you know this, Alex, so, but let me reiterate it. One of the core principles of innovation is you need people to bring different perspectives to bear. And a lot of times what happens with these teams, everybody just tries to fit in. And they don't often feel like they want to rock the boat. They don't want to challenge each other. They don't want to offer a perspective that conflicts. But that's what you have to do. That's like, that's the heavy lifting of innovation. That's where the, that's where the good work comes in. And by we, what we've shown in team after team, by giving them this, this best self-activation, this what we call a highlight reel, it empowered them or affirmed them to bring their unique best to the team. So that's one thing. Boy, I could talk about that forever because that... That essentially is the core of that next book called Exceptional. Well, I mean, I think it's both intuitive and inspirational that self-confidence makes the difference, right? You can go perpendicular, you can be provocative, you can push the envelope, get the, the team to look at things in different ways, emphasizes the role of diversity, all those 
all those key aspects. So I, I'm fully behind it. I guess that's also behind the name of your your book, right? <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, building your personal highlight reel and unlocking your potential. That's how you become exceptional. I guess those are the aspects of your title of your book. Now, anything else on that in terms of focusing on your strengths? What other aha moments in your book would you point us to? One of the things I'm working on right now is this idea of feeling like you don't deserve a promotion, the sense of imposter syndrome. And a lot of times people feel like they're, they're going to get found out, that they're a faker. And one of the things that we're looking at and learning is a second thing that these highlight reels seem to do is they seem to affirm people to accept themselves as a professional and as somebody who has a unique point of view that's valid and valuable to bring to the party. It's basically, what do you got that's unique to bring to the party? That actually is one of the themes that we hit on the most, which is having that unique point of view is not only something clients really want. They want your texture. You know, they want, they want your character. They, wanna, they don't just want the facts they could get from anywhere. They, they want to know something from you. We're learning that that is more true than just in a consulting environment. You know, that's true in many, many environments, including people that do sales or a professor. Or the ability to know yourself and show yourself with confidence is something that really seems to make a difference. And climbing over this imposter syndrome and starting to feel that you own it and that you do deserve it, that's an important component of this. I'm a little confused sometimes why it feels so weird to do it. Like nobody essentially does these things. This whole, you know, personal highlight reel, your living eulogy, it's seen as like really, really weird until after you do it. Then after you do it, it's like, oh my God, why didn't I do that 10 years ago? Well, I'd love the living eulogy. I'd love to hear some positives as well. It's a human thing, right? You, you know, self-awareness, self-confidence, avoiding the self-doubt, pushing your own envelope to achieve your visions. These are very inspirational points. And hopefully as we zoom out of this year, <laughs> you know, maybe three years from now, we look back on 2020 and maybe there's some even broader acceleration of great things, adoption of some of your principles of joy and enthusiasm and zest. If you look back a couple years from now to 2020, what progress do you hope will have taken from this year overall? I think there's a lot to be said in general, but for the workplace, flexibility, uh, the two types of flexibility that I'm thinking about right now is the flexibility to be able to work from wherever, but home could be one of those places. And I really think this is one of the, it's one of the grounds that shifted under our feet. And now that we see that this can work, I think a lot more people in 22 and 25, 2025, they're going to look back and see this as the watershed moment when we saw we don't all have to be in the office together every day. And I think that's going to cut down on so much angst and commute time and, and just um, um, fakery, you know, like sort of like uh, being at work because you're supposed to be at work kind of thing instead of doing actual work. Right. Playing a role, right? Playing a role. Yeah. And sort of like grandstanding. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing I've already gone on about, which is the customizing the work, the flexibility to not be um, a leader that says, this is how the job is done, but instead being the type of leader that says, this is the output that we need. We hired you because you're smart. How would you accomplish it? What can we learn from your skills? How can I help you accomplish that outcome better? For me, those are big positive steps forward that we, honestly, Alex, we would have not been there for another decade. The pace was crawling toward personalizing work until this happened. Great. Well, listen, it's been a great uh, joint adventure with you as always. Thank you very much, Dan. 
Good. I really enjoyed chatting with you about these things. Thanks to Dan Cable for joining us. You can find Dan on Twitter at DanCable1. His new book is entitled Exceptional, Build Your Personal Highlight Reel and Unlock Your Potential. If you're looking for ways to build more connection and solidarity at work, subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding hope and joy through your work. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have questions you'd like us to answer this season, please email us at joy at carney.com. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward even during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work.